Hello, ladies and gentlemen. I am O'Brien McMahon, and this is People Business. Every business is in some way a people business. From Silicon Valley to the restaurant down the street, every business relies on groups of people working together toward a common cause. That's no easy task. While the world around us has evolved into a high-tech, interdependent matrix, our individual software is largely the same as it was 10,000 years ago. We are social, emotional animals balancing a need to fit in with a desire to stand out. Bring us together in large groups, put money on the line, and anything could happen. This is a show where current and aspiring business leaders can understand the people dynamics at play in their organizations and learn skills and techniques to improve their chances of long-term business success. This week, I'm joined by Brian Bogert. Brian is a passionate human behavior and performance coach, speaker, business strategist, top sales professional, and philanthropic leader who believes in helping growth-minded individuals make their best even better. Brian teaches how to leverage radical authenticity and awareness to create the intentional life you've been dreaming of, but have been struggling to create. His revolutionary strategy, Embrace Pain to Avoid Suffering, has helped individuals and companies break beyond their normal to achieve the success in life and business that they've always wanted. Brian is an expert in getting to the root cause of what is holding somebody back and really helping people work through those issues to become their best self. I'm excited to launch this at this time. We're heading into a new year and after a tough 2020. And whereas people normally go through some goal-setting exercises at the new year, I think this year it's especially important to think about who we are, what we want out of life, and really what's important and what priorities have come to the forefront through the pandemic. I hope you enjoy this. I think there's a ton that everybody can take away. Without further ado, here is Brian Bogert. And we are up with Brian Bogert. Brian, welcome to the show. Man, I'm so happy to be here, Obi. This is going to be fun. For all the years we've known each other, this is a, a fun thing to do together. Yeah, this will be fun to pick your brain. I know you and I have gotten together the last, what, eight or nine years and picked each other's brains at national conferences and things, but it'll be fun to, to have it recorded here for perpetuity. Absolutely. So I'm going to put you on the spot right away and get to the heart of it. What is the worst advice that you hear? people giving out today? (laughs) You know, I'm going to put it into a generalized bucket. It's not a singular thing. It's more of a theme behind it. I think there's a whole lot of people that are telling others what they should be doing or who they should be. And that just absolutely drives me crazy. You know, I think there's a lot of individuals that are out there saying, well, you shouldn't do this. You won't be successful. Or you should do this seven-step system because it's exactly what's going to make you successful. The reality of it is we're all unique. Right? We all have different ways of entering into the world. We all have different ways of viewing the world. And so to dictate our actions based on what somebody else tells us we should do is a challenge. And the reason I say that's an overarching piece is, is I hear a lot of that right now, particularly given the pandemic and everything saying like, you know, if you don't come out of this with a better skill, a better asset, a better business, so like, you know, you should be ashamed of yourself, right? And should just buy like right out of the gate. Or the reason I hate that word to begin with is it's a shame-based word because it's implying that whatever you're doing isn't good enough. And so I think that's the worst piece of advice is when anybody tells you what you should do or who you should be, run the other way. Because if they haven't taken the time and the context to get enough clarity on who you are already and what you're trying to accomplish, then that statement really just doesn't have any bearing or credibility for you. I'm glad that I asked that first because we are going to get into some different things here that could come off as somewhat prescriptive. And so I think to have you level set that for everybody that as we get into this conversation, there's nothing in here that they should do or need to do. It's just all things that they could do if they think it'd be helpful for them. Correct. So what in your mind is the difference between a coach and a therapist? (laughs) You know, I think a therapist obviously has a level of certification and they are clinicians and they're held, I think, to a certain code as it relates to how they enter into different types of conversations and how to protect it and the types of things that can be shared or not shared. The reason I laugh out of the gate with that is I often tell people I'm not a therapist, right? I am a coach. Now that said, there are certain psychological pieces, emotional pieces, damage and repair pieces that coaches will touch on, right? And I hope that for the most part, coaches understand where those lines can get blurred 
and also are willing and able to suggest when it's outside of their expertise. So there are certain things that I will have tertiary levels of knowledge on, but I will not go deep on, right? I might suggest literally if it's like it's something with addiction, although I have addiction in my family and I understand the codependency nature of it, I understand the shame that can come from it. I understand some of the emotional triggers. There are certain things that if somebody's dealing with addiction or they're in a household that's dealing with addiction, I just won't touch it, right? I will talk around it. And then I suggest people need to go get some additional structured help around those things. So I think that there are coaching sessions that can lean towards a therapy type approach. But I also think that coaching often is going to be layered with very tactical and strategic elements on helping people move through life, business, relationships on a holistic perspective. Whereas therapy is often going to be in my mind, although there will be a life lens to it, it's often going to be taking people on an intrinsic journey, but there's not going to be that action piece on the back end in the same way. Not always. And I don't mean that in any way to be detrimental to therapy. I've been in therapy. My wife and I go to marriage counseling and therapy. I'm a big believer in it, but I also have coaches, right? And so I think coaches often are going to take a slightly different approach in giving you tools, techniques, systems that can kind of help you work through things versus just focusing on the psychological and emotional elements. The reason I say there's a blurred line, the reality of it is, is a lot of the work that I do is about strategy and tactics. But I think so many people think that strategy and tactics being wrong are what keeps them in the place that they're in. And often there's an emotional trigger or behavioral pattern that often connects to those. So the strategy and tactic might be dialed in, but if they haven't done the work they need to do to get to where they need to be as an individual, strategy and tactics don't necessarily matter. And so it's got to be a healthy combination of both, I believe. And I think it's really kind of a topical issue on what are you looking to uncover versus in coaching versus in therapy. So how do you define your work then? I define my work as human behavior and performance coaching. I am looking to help get people out of their own way and get them to their next level. I am not going to sit for 8, 9, 10, 12 sessions rehashing the same types of things as you might in therapy where you're going to go a lot deeper we're going to hit the high level pieces of it. We're going to actually uncover and help people see those blind spots. And then we start to work and move through those at a pretty rapid pace. Now, that's not to suggest that if somebody needs to revisit an issue or we need to go deeper that we don't spend more time on it. But my sessions that I work with my clients on are always looking to drive towards an outcome, right? Which is also a part of embracing the process of what their growth and their intrinsic journey looks like. But for example... I've got an individual that I'm working with. He's 68 years old. He has been very successful. He works as a consultant and a coach himself. He's worked with six different coaches in his life who have all given him some level of tools, tactics, strategies, techniques to really be able to move forward. So you're always checking back to it, to that thing. Because when we're, we're products of our conditioning, right? And behavioral patterns and emotional triggers bubble up on everything. I've dealt with shame in my life. I'm sure we'll unpack that later, but like shame doesn't ever go away, right? So it's something that I constantly have to make sure I keep in conscious level of awareness so that in those moments, I can make sure that shame isn't dictating and and determining my actions, but that I can actually take control of what is that emotional trigger doing for my lens in the moment and how do I change the path? It's the same thing with coaching. So you said shame a couple of times here. And I know you and I have had conversations, you know, offline about shame and and shame-based cultures and business and that kind of thing. What do you see as the top negative feelings or thoughts or emotions that hold people back? Is shame the number one or are there some others in there? Shame is definitely up there. And I think shame can be often bucketed with self-worth as well, even though they can be different. I think there's often self-worth issues. I think there's often shame issues. We deal with a lot of fear. We've dealt with a lot of scarcity. And then there's pieces that kind of surround each one of those things. You know, shame... Where I see it as shame, others might not. Because shame is the ultimate wolf in sheep's clothing. It literally hides and masks itself as anxiety and stress and fear and guilt and a whole bunch of other emotions, which they might be the root source of. Shame might not be it. But getting to the root of shame can be very challenging for people. So I think it's definitely one of the top three that we deal with in some capacity, particularly with high performers. Because there's a whole lot of people who've gotten to a crazy high level of success made a ton of money, who've been very, very focused in areas, but have been really riddled by shame in one capacity or another. And so we've got to start to unpack that, right? And particularly for those high performers that operate in the shame-based culture, 
it can literally become like just this never ending cycle that they end up numbing and not really healing through and not really starting to like recognize how do I actually flip shame so that I can use it to my advantage versus having it dictate who I am. And so what is a shame-based culture then? Like how does shame show up in an overall culture? Yeah. So I think there's lots of ways that it can, but I think that, you know, it, it often can have to do with people not ever being good enough right? Like there's a leadership tactic that is constantly trying to check people down versus uplifting and encouraging them. And a lot of sales-based cultures can easily tip into this if they're not careful, because it can also be like, I don't really care what you've done for the last five years. What have you done for me today? Right? And then even when people reach some level of success, right? It's like, you're not good enough. You're not worthy. And so it's, you know, you can have lots of up and coming or middle of the ground, high performing individuals, but if they're not in that top 2% of an entity, they're not even focused on or looked at as a valuable asset. Now that can exist in lots of different cultures. And it can be that no matter what actions are good enough, that it's still placing fault or blame on certain people. And it's in the way that communication can translate because what shame really is, is focusing on not the actions that you've taken, but who you are. Right. And so there's a really subtle way that language can be embedded so that people don't feel that they're good enough or who they are isn't good enough to fit within a culture. And that's where it can get super damaging. Can you say that again and just unpack that a little bit more? Cause that, I just need to hear that again, I think. So shame and the root of shame often gets to the difference between the actions that you take and who you are. Right. So you as a salesperson, as a partner in a, in a firm who's building and growing things, right? You could literally decide that you're going to fire a client. And you might have all of the reasons for understanding what that is. But the message that you might get on the back end is who do you think you are? Why would you fire a client? We don't care how damaging it is to our teams. We don't care how much it is because that account was a half a million dollar account. Like, what are you doing? And it's not so much. Obi, what you did was a bad decision. It gets to the core of like who you are and the way that you showed up in that environment isn't good enough for our culture. It isn't good enough for our environment because you made a decision independent of what everybody else said because you were focused on what you did and it being the right thing for your teams, but the organization focused on it as who you are. You're not good enough. Okay. You know, you mentioned should at the beginning of this. I imagine a lot of like kind of an easy way to identify shame is when somebody says you should be this, you should be that, or need, you need to be this, you need to be that, you need to be doing these things, you need like should and need to are kind of key identifiers that maybe you're be. operating yeah. in shame or a shame based. And so, so let's unpack shame just a little bit because I think it's important for people to understand like what is the root of it and what are the, yeah. some of the narratives you get, right? Because I think that's also really important. So, the reason I didn't identify shame in my life for a very long time is because the primary narrative where most people live is you're not worthy, you're not good enough. And I'd be lying if I said I didn't live there in moments in my life, like I absolutely have, but that's not been the predominant language and narrative for myself. And so Brene Brown, I think, you know, she's one of the world renowned shame experts. She does a really good job of outlining this. And this is, she was actually the person that helped me identify the difference between these two. So you're not worthy, you're not good enough. When people shut that down, and they show up in the arena and they're ready to go to battle. The second narrative is, who do you think you are? Yeah. That imposter syndrome. Imposter syndrome. Yep. Different pieces around that. But it's also another narrative saying, right? Again, going to the example of a, a sales-based culture. If you've crushed it and had a major year, but you're still not in that top 2 to 5%, right? Who are you to show up and feel good about your success? Because mm. it's not in the top 2 to 5%. So who are you? Like, who do you think you are? You're just nobody, Right. That's kind of part of the language is it's, it's a very subtle piece. And it can, sometimes can be in language. Sometimes it can be in just subtleties in how we interact with people. Like you don't deserve to be in this circle. And for you to even show up thinking that you are, it can be. So for me, everything major I've ever done in my life, I felt the need to apologize for. Mm, that's Literally. Because I felt like I just constantly felt like every time I had my own success, it highlighted the deficiencies of what other people weren't doing. Now, there's a deeply rooted element to me in understanding what, where that came from, how that bubbles up in my life, so I could actually unpack that. But the reason the shame is of the ultimate wolf in sheep's clothing is because it literally boxes you in from both sides, right? And then to your point, imposter syndrome is another term for it. Worth and guilt and all these other pieces fit over here. People identify shame as different emotions, but shame can be extremely damaging. Yeah. It's funny you say that. So I, I started to chuckle 
Do you remember the movie Coach Carter? Oh, yeah. With Samuel L. Jackson? Oh, yeah. So there's a scene in there where he asks the guy, there's, there's a player who's really good, but is kind of acting up. And he asks him over and over again, what is your greatest fear? You know, what is your greatest fear? What is your greatest fear? And eventually the guy kind of gets, because of Coach Carter's help, gets himself back on track, studies, and he stands up at one point and delivers the quote. And I can't remember who to attribute it to, but it's our greatest fear is not that we are inadequate, but that we are greater than our wildest dreams could even imagine. And that our light is going to shine so bright that it's going to tune everybody else out. But that's not really how it works. And that I'll link the quote in the show notes and, and get it actually right because it is a really good one. But it's a great quote. And I know exactly which moment in the movie you're talking about. Yeah. And I just thought that was great that like what we really are afraid of is not failure, but it's success in a lot of ways. And it I, is. And then, you know, you have to deal with all the issues that come with success. But I don't know if that was the point that you were getting to, but that was something that, uh, no, that I mean, that, 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 is, that is a very powerful point because until you start to realize that shame plays a role in your life, if it does, I'm not saying that everybody has that. But for me, I actually ratcheted myself back. Yeah. I literally would not take certain actions because if I lived at that level, I was going to immediately be brought back into my shame tunnel where I had to apologize for the success I was having. So I literally didn't live authentically to who I was and the ways that I wanted to show up in the world on certain things where I knew I could have a big impact simply because I didn't want to have to feel badly that I was successful in that scenario. And I know that might not make sense to certain people, but that's a reality in my life. And I see that for other high performers where they ratchet themselves back because they don't want to be put into the limelight. They don't want to be put into a scenario where it's like all of a sudden they feel like they're not good enough or somebody's going to say, who do you think you are? Yeah. Right? Well, I mean, you see, it's why upward mobility is so hard. Because as soon as people start to get successful, the people around them start to look at them and say, well, oh, who do you think you are? Right. You know, oh, look at, you know, Mr. Fancy Pants over here, bought a new car, you know, whatever the case might be. That's exactly right. Yeah. So I work with a nonprofit here that helps in underserved communities and it provides experiential education and has some profound impacts on the trajectory for students. But there was one student who was in one of the first classes and she graduated and by all outside metrics, she was a success. She got into college, she got great grades, she was like on track to kind of leave her past behind. But she after her first year of college, wound up kind of breaking down and confessing to one of my partners in the group and was really having a difficult time because she had succeeded and done all of these things that were so great. But in her first year of college, she didn't quite fit in with the people around her because she had come from a different background. And so she was always a little bit different. Well, then she went back home to where she did belong. And now she had risen above where a lot of them had ever risen to. And now she didn't really fit in there either. And so she was in this limbo period where she didn't quite fit in in either world. And she was really struggling with being quote unquote successful. And so I'm curious to hear your perspective on how somebody unpacks that and gets through those barriers, whether they're self-imposed or whether they're community imposed. Yeah. So I, you know, I think you can probably appreciate the fact that I'm going to tell you there's not like a three-step process that everybody can apply. Sure. Right. I think everybody's unique and everybody's got their own different triggers that that will impact them. But I think that if we overly simplify it for the purpose of answering the question, I really encourage people to move things into a level of conscious awareness and to take themselves on an intrinsic journey so they get really, really clear on who they are and the patterns that have developed in their life, as well as the blind spots that they might have. And so, you know, the core of the work of everything we do comes back to this idea of awareness and intentionality. And so I'll start with that to unpack that for a second, right? I think in that scenario where she's looking, she's like, look, I've done all these things to put myself in a better scenario. I've done all these things to make sure that I can be successful, but I don't fit in in this world because maybe I'm not worthy or I'm not good enough, or I just don't fit because I'm different. And I've already kind of exceeded over this side. And I'm now like, you know, who do you think you are? I mean, that's, that's shame talking right there, potentially. Right? I'm not sure. saying that that's the case for her, but, but again, that is a very common pattern that we see. Our minds process 11 million bits of information per second, but we're only consciously aware of about 40. Like, How many people have you met that say that you know, they want more level of control, more level of influence in their lives and their trajectory of their lives? Like, almost everybody I know desires that. It's like sure. something that we all desire. But how many people do we know that also feel like life just happens to them and they don't actually have that control? Right? That 11 million yeah. 40, huh? Just about everybody. Yeah. 
that 11 million to 40 suggests that we're largely led by the unconscious, right? 11 million pieces per second, we're only consciously, we're about 40. So until we go through a systematic process of moving the unconscious to conscious, the unaware to the aware, we will not ever feel like we have control or influence in our lives. In fact, we're going to feel like life is happening to us and like it's fate. And yeah. so how do we begin to unpack that, right? I begin at the very beginning for a lot of my clients. I literally want to know their life story, upbringings, patterns, relationships, like, because even if somebody comes to me for the sole purpose of getting a greater return in their business, it still starts there because the individual, it begins and ends with you. So we have to understand like, what are those things that have kept us potentially in a self-defeating path? What are those things that we're blind to that aren't allowing us to actually break through those, that ceiling that we've placed on ourselves for what we think we can do from a success standpoint? And then how do we normalize ourselves from a human element and human connection perspective to make sure that regardless of which arena that we show up in, whether we're not worthy or good enough, or all of a sudden we're showing up and we've outgrown the people that we were in our circle to maintain that level of like connection and focus and because we're all human beings. And so I literally people, I walk people through an intrinsic journey where we start to unpack those things. And then we get very, very clear on who they are, where they want to go. And we then start to translate those things into strategy and tactics on a forward going perspective. So if you know that you're riddled by fear, we've got to get our arms around fear. Where did fear show up in your life? Where did it prevent you from taking action? Where were moments that you were able to push through? We have to move those into conscious level of awareness so that we can then be intentional on an ongoing perspective moving forward right? If there, if there is shame that bubbles up, if there are worth issues that show bubble up, where, what is the root? Where did it come from? How has it impacted you in your life? What are the types of things that we can do to overcome that real time now and moving into the future so that we can start to take control of those things that have happened? The reality of it is when I say should is the word that I want to remove, we are all born as the most authentic, burning, pure light in our entire life. You know, you've got, you've got kids. You're starting to see like just the rawness of youth. They come out exactly who they are. And what happens? We as parents, coaches, teachers, employers start saying, you should do this. You shouldn't do that. You shouldn't do this. You shouldn't do that. And we start layering all of these things onto our kids so that by the time they're an adult, they're just a glimmer of the light they once were. That's such a bleak landscape. Yeah. But it's true. Yeah. Right. No, like for, think about sure. it. And so the core of what I do with people is help them get back to that core of who they are. Because yeah. when we can be unbridled, it's not so much about like discovering our purpose and creating it. It's not about like just discovering our why and creating it. Those are pieces of it. But when we start with the who, when we get to the root of who those people are, then the what becomes a manifestation of the who, right? And then the strategy and tactic can align with that individual. And so we've got to unpack that. As you asked, like, how do we unpack that? We literally have to start sometimes at the core of what's been holding us back. And if we don't know, we, I, as a coach, have to help them discover what are those things that are holding them back so we can not have them hold them back anymore, get them unstuck so they can start moving forward. I love that. So talking about conscious awareness then, because something I've struggled with, I've worked with coaches in the past and I've just worked on myself a bunch in the past. And it can be it's one thing to come up with what those things are that are holding you back and to be aware of them. And it's, it can be difficult, but that's, it's a great first step. But then there's another step where you actually have to hold them in your conscience or consciousness as you go through the world. And that can be tricky. It can be easy to unpack something with a coach and be like, oh man, this is great. And two days later, you've gotten back into the slipstream of your life and totally forgotten about it. And then, you know, two weeks later, you meet with your coach again. And it's like, well, how did that thing go? And you're like, well, it went great for about 36 hours and then not so great for 12. And then I totally dropped it. And like, you can get into that pattern a lot. And that can happen again the next two weeks and then the next two weeks. So how do you help people keep something in their conscious awareness so that they can be using it or, or reacting to it in the right way in the moment? Yeah. So there's a variety of ways. One of them is I, I work with people around what we call kind of intentional daily alignment. And so once we've done the work, we also have a process that people can visit for 5 to 10 minutes a day to recalibrate every single morning, which gives them that process. I am also a believer, not for the rigidity sake of it, but I am a believer of doing certain things from a routine basis to give ourselves the ability to have the consistency build up over time so that it's not something we have to think about anymore. But the reality of it is it's also a combination of a couple of those tactical ways of doing it as it is like we've got to create sometimes a mind-body connection. Sometimes those things bubble up as an emotional trigger. We feel it in our gut. 
right? And we, we've been conditioned so often in life to just shove stuff down, put a smile on our face, show up and do the work that we need to do. And what I really encourage people is like, when you feel those triggers, pay attention to them in the moment. That doesn't mean you have to do anything differently at that time, but take toll of them. Right. Because when we start to take toll of them, we start to recognize those patterns that exist in our life. So we can intellectually tell ourselves, like, oh, I'm not going to let fear hold me back. But then what happens? Something comes into our world where all of a sudden we feel the fear and we don't always have the ability to move ourselves through it. So the first step is we have to acknowledge when we're triggered. When do those behavioral patterns actually come into awareness? Or like, when can we put those into awareness because they're happening in our day to day life? That doesn't mean. Obi, that you're going to go out and you're going to do this with a coach and 36 hours are going to be perfect and that you're not going to stumble and fall. But the point is, is like we have to start to create something, some trigger that's going to allow you to recognize it. And so, you know, I've got a client that is very impacted by shame. They know exactly what the feeling feels like. And we've also been able to identify that for this person, there's actually a physical manifestation of that feeling beyond just feeling it in the gut. They actually have a warming effect that move up their chest and their neck and they start to feel the blotchiness because shame makes them want to make themselves small. They can't operate in a position of worth. They, and so they know when that starts to happen. So just simply acknowledging and accepting, okay, this is what's happening physically in my body right now, allows them to shift and say, I'm probably being triggered by shame. Even if they can't identify it in that moment, take note of it and try not to allow them to dictate their actions differently. But when they take note of it, then we can actually unpack the scenario. What happened? What was the conversation? What actually took place so that we start to identify those patterns? I don't know if that answers your question, but it's a combination of actual tactics on a daily basis and really helping people both intellectually and emotionally connect on where and how do these things show up for them. Yeah, no, that definitely answers the question. You talked about routines in there. That'd be an interesting one to unpack a little bit too. Are you talking about a morning routine? Are you like what kind of routines are you talking about? Yeah, I think I think morning routines. I think getting yourself prepped for certain types of meetings, being able to transition between types of roles. You know, I'll, I'll give an example for myself. And some people think this sounds crazy, but I literally have a two and a half hour morning routine. Right now, I get up between three thirty and four every day, so it doesn't impact other people. But I'm a big believer in morning routines because it's the only time of day that I have hundred percent control of my time. I don't have clients reaching out to me. My wife and kids aren't awake yet. Like, and if I choose to keep my phone face down, which I do for the first hour of my morning routine, then I'm not even seeing what came in for the night before or so far that part of the day. I get in, my morning routine focuses on mental, physical, spiritual, and emotional. I hit all four out of the gate and I get myself prepared for the day. Now, I've got that broken up into some very specific things. I can unpack that if you want me to. But the reality of it is, is like what works for me isn't what's going to work for you, isn't what's going to work for each one of my other clients. And so it's a matter of what are the things that we know we need to do? I call them linchpins. What are the linchpins that are going to keep us together? And if that pin gets pulled, everything else falls apart. I know what those things are for me. And so I knock them out in the morning, the first two and a half hours of the day, because it gets me stronger, more capable of handling whatever's going to come at me and being able to carry the weight of the burdens of the day and the people that I'm helping through my work. And so. I set myself up for success each day by establishing that environment for success. Another routine though is, look, when I get done here, especially in this remote world that we work in, I go inside, I literally go into my bathroom first, I put my phone face down, and I go focus on what I call 10 minutes of present time with my wife and my kids. And I try to be active and in the moment so that we can kind of transition and get everything going. So it's a routine that I have, but if I didn't take this phone and find a way to put it down... I'm going to be reacting to it versus in control of what's coming into my world and creating that space for me. So those are two examples. For lots of clients, we create different types of routines. Some have a hesitancy to pick up that 500-pound telephone. So is there a mental or an emotional rehearsal that we can actually do to get ourselves prepped so that we can pick up that phone, generate the leads that we need to to grow our business? Right? Sure. Because sometimes that can be overwhelming. So if we know that there's certain blocks and hurdles, we try to attack those. I have a client that knows his linchpins are good nutrition and physical movement. So what we've done is we've created a different routine for him in the morning where he's got his Peloton literally in his bedroom. So the first thing he does when he gets out of his bed is get on his bike. Because if it's not there, he literally won't do it. <laughs> but he knows how important it is. Sure. And so we've played around with this routine now for six-ish months. We've tried different things. We finally found something that sticks, which is literally, he has to have that Peloton like 10 feet from his bed. So that the first thing he does is there. If he doesn't do that, even if it's downstairs, he'll sit down on the couch next to the Peloton downstairs instead of actually getting on the bike. And then he's done. 
So let's remove yeah. those hurdles, right? Sure. Oh, what you said makes me think of a routine that I had too, which is, you know, I'm a big believer that the the mindset that you walk into a sales meeting with dictates how that meeting is going to go. You can say the same thing, same words, but if you are attached to the outcome and you need that sale and you're a little bit behind and you're a little bit scarce, that's going to come off one way versus if you're detached and you're just there to help and you're just curious about the other person and what they're trying to do, like it's going to come off a different way. And so that's one of the things that I did a number of years ago is I was actually, I, I wrote on a slip of paper some affirmation statements to myself about not needing anything from other people and and being okay walking out of there with nothing. And I would read it either in the elevator, in the lobby or whatever, going in to meet with somebody and it would just help. And then you know, eventually after doing it for two years, I could do it without the slip of paper and I would just sort of rehearse it in my head. Which that's one of the techniques I use with clients. I mean, I'm a big believer in what I call I am statements, right? I am statements are an answer to who are you question. So like I said, Obi, who are you? And you can answer that question based on who you are today and the things you've already done or based on who you want to become and the things that you want to accomplish. Both can be equally powerful and actually can rewire the way that we think, right? And the way that we operate. And so, right, worthiness issues. I have clients that literally write down, I am worthy. When they visit that every single day and they start to tell themselves, I am worthy, right? It changes the way that they operate into the world. So they also then start to recognize the physical manifestations of that worth in different moments throughout their day because they'll know when they don't feel worthy. They'll know those moments. And that's where we can start to take the combination of tactics and strategies that they do every single day with getting themselves to be in the moment where they can recognize and take toll on what's happening. Those affirmations are unbelievably powerful. And well, by the way, that's a part of the routine. Right. Yeah. I, I have I have a routine that I, as I've worked with a meditation coach now for the last few months, there's this process called sifting, which literally can help clear the mind and actually get focused on. So it helps with meditation and concentration, which are two of the, the tenets of traditional meditation approaches. And I will literally, if I'm stuck on something or I'm focused or I know that I want to go create a piece of content and I don't have it quite there, I'll literally sift for five or ten minutes because it just clears everything out and then I can show up and do exactly what I need to do. That's a routine and a tool that I've learned to leverage. I don't have a set time that I do it every single day, which is why I say it's not routine for rigidity's sake, but routine for the sense that it's like, if I notice that I'm getting stuck or I'm starting to stress out about a piece of content that I want to create and I can't find the words to do it, I will literally go do sifting and then I'll turn on the camera and start filming. And nine times out of 10, exactly what needs to come out comes out. Are you able to walk us through what sifting looks like? Yeah, so I'll give it in a very simplistic sense. So there's multiple, there's a few different ways to do it, but sifting, there's essentially two tins. There's a big tin and there's a little tin. The big tin is filled with sand and sand that also has rocks and other pieces in it. And the little tin is empty, right? Now it will get filled up over time, but it goes back to, I think what we all did as kids, right? You go to the beach, what do I do? I sit on a, in a chair and I play with sand in my, with my feet and with my hands. It connects us with the earth. It grounds us, it clears our thoughts. And through the meditative process, it's actually the process of picking something up, moving it over and letting go, right? So when, you, when I tend to perseverate on something, stress or get anxious or I feel stuck, right? Literally the process of just letting go, it's trusting and surrendering the process. And literally all you do is you move, you sift through the sand until you find an item that you want to pick up. It's often a rock or something that's different. Pick it up and you move it over to this tin. And that repeated action of doing that time and time again focuses the mind from a concentration perspective, but it also gets you into a meditative flow state that allows you to just let go. It's a newer technique that I've been using. Yeah. It's highly effective. So are you visualizing actual rocks and sand or are you visualizing the things that are going on in your life and you're picking them up and letting them go? Both. It depends on the moment. Okay. Sometimes I literally just focus on the sand and the rocks in front of me and I allow the process to just be what it is. And there's other times where I just, I look and I, I kind of visualize the trusting and surrendering of the process. And through that, I'm actually using the sifting process to work through it. I've also used sifting when I've been on a call with, with a coaching client where I was stuck, where I couldn't see what the connection point was. And we will have a call. And sometimes I'll sift in the middle of a call because it doesn't take conscious energy to do it, but it allows me to just really pay attention to what's happening and attach to what I need to. And then I can be more effective in that process. I know it sounds a little hokey or, or crazy, but it's, it's a technique that works for many people. And it's one that I've found through working with my meditation coach that allows me to put myself into a meditative state in my awake state. Yeah. I mean, it's, 
Yeah, it might sound hokey to some people, but it's amazing the different things that work for different people to help clear your mind or increase performance or a number of different things. But yeah. Which is I mean, why there's... I don't take a prescriptive approach most of the time for people. I try to have a giant tool chest because what works for me isn't going to be what works for most of my clients. What would work for you isn't going to be what works for most of my clients. I have to help people get to the root of who they are and what's going to work for them. And when we do that, that's when magic happens and they start to get joy, freedom, and fulfillment into the areas of their life. Yeah. So let's go back to kind of the trajectory we were on before where we talked about bringing things into your conscious awareness, creating some routines, being able to hold that in your conscience, being able to identify those moments. You know, there's an element to, as we think through sort of the next phase in that, where now you have to start acting on this stuff. And that that's where the rubber meets the road. And that's where it can get really tricky or painful. You know, you hear people say all the time, well, you need to get comfortable being uncomfortable. And I think the big fallacy there is that you ever get comfortable. The whole point is that it's uncomfortable. Like it never, you're not, if, if it's not uncomfortable, then it's by definition comfortable. And so like, I think people are like, oh no, like eventually I'm going to get used to this. And it's like, no, no, no. It's always, there's always going to be some pain there. It's always going to hurt or be awkward in some way. And you just, you have to just know that and deal with that. And so how do you coach people to deal with that uncomfortableness of actually creating change for themselves? Yeah. So if you'll bear with me, I want to tell a story first, because it'll give some concept to a concept that I have in my life that we often connect to our coaching work. But I, I want people to understand the context before we jump into it because it'll, it'll make some sense. So I want everybody who's listening to just close their eyes for one second. I'll tell you when to reopen them. Unless you're driving. Imagine, this is a podcast. Huh? So if you're driving, keep your eyes open. Yeah. If you're driving... Yeah. Thank you for the catch on that. Yeah. <laughs> it's funny. I've said that on a, on a ton of podcasts. I've never had anybody like, oh, unless you're driving because it's a podcast. But that's exactly <laughs> spot on. So thank you. I'm going to start saying that now. So for those that are driving and you're going to see this, uh, great. For those that have your eyes closed, I want you to literally just imagine walking out of a store after a successful shopping trip, turning your head and seeing a truck barreling 40 miles an hour right at you with no time to react. And that's where this portion of my story begins. My mom, my brother, and I went to our Walmart to get a one-inch paintbrush. And as we were headed to the car, I was, of course, there first. This was back in the day when you had to put the key in the door instead of having a key fob to unlock it. And so I was standing there waiting for my mom and brother to catch up and unlock the doors. As that happened, a truck pulled up in front of the, the store, driver and middle passenger got out, and the passenger all the way to the right felt the truck moving backwards. So he did what any one of us would do. He moves over to put his foot on the brake, but he instead hit the gas. Combination of shock and force threw him up onto the steering wheel, up onto the dashboard, and before you know it, he was catapulting across the parking lot 40 miles an hour right at us with no time to react. So there I am, and the truck goes up and over the median, goes up and over the tree in the median, hits our car, knocks me over, runs over me diagonally, tears my spleen, leaves a tire track scar on my stomach and continues on to sever my left arm completely from my body. I'm there laying on a 115 degree day in, on the asphalt in Phoenix, Arizona. My mom and brother watched the whole thing happen. My arm is 10 feet away and my guardian angel also watched the whole thing happen. She rushed over, immediately saw the life and limb scenario in front of her, put her hands on the wound to stop the bleeding and save my life. And she immediately instructed some innocent bystanders to run inside, grab a cooler, fill it with ice, and get my arm on ice within minutes. Had she not done one or both of those things, Obi, I either wouldn't be here with you today or I'd be here with you today with a cleanup stop. That's just a fact. And so I know that everybody wasn't expecting it to go there, but it's important that it did because what I've realized in all this time is that we all have unique stories. So despite the fact that I've got a very unique story and I'm sure that wasn't where we thought it was going to go, we all have unique stories. What's important is that we pause become aware of the lessons we can extract from those stories and then become intentional with how we apply them in our lives. I have two primary lessons and I'm getting to answer your question. I trust you. I learned not to get stuck by what had happened to me, but get, instead get moved by what I can do with it. And the second, I didn't realize until far later. Because at 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12 years old, like as much as I was very aware of what was happening, I was also in a fog, right? The unceasing medical treatments, years of physical therapy and all the recovery, just I was a part of the path. My parents were directing it. They were not in a fog. They were very, very aware of everything that was going on. And the idea of seeing their son grow up without the use of his arm was a source of great suffering for them. And so they willed themselves day in and day out to do what was necessary, what was tough, to ultimately embrace the pain of all the things that were going to heal and strengthen me to avoid the suffering of seeing their son grow up without the use of his left arm. So it wasn't probably intentional, 
but it definitely ingrained in me a philosophy and way of living, which was to embrace pain to avoid suffering, which is also where we gain freedom. And so to answer your question, how do I help people do this, right? This is always a lens that we run through people's eyes. I'm going to give three examples on what this concept means, and then I'm going to give you the the structure that we actually walk people through. We can embrace the pain of hitting the gym for 30 minutes a day to avoid the suffering of aches and pains of sedentary lifestyle. We can embrace the pain of a difficult conversation with a loved one or spouse to avoid the suffering of a loveless marriage that's going to end up in divorce or being stuck in a marriage when we ultimately want a divorce. As business owners, we can ultimately embrace the pain of firing our top salesperson to avoid the suffering of stagnant growth and losing all our other top talent because they were the biggest cancer in our culture. And this goes on in everything in our life. And so how do I help people translate this to action? I think a very important step in the first one is to acknowledge the suffering we wish to avoid. And then we have to like really learn to embrace it, right? We have got to start to work through that. So people say, wait, that sounds backwards. That doesn't make any sense to me. But the reality of it is we know the suffering that we wish to avoid then what's opposite of that is also what we really want in our lives. We get clarity on who we are, the things we want to accomplish, and where we go. But when we can understand what suffering looks like in that scenario, like my parents did with the idea of their son growing up with abuse of his arm, it becomes very, very powerful as a motivator to take action on a regular and consistent basis. I have a client I'm working with right now. He'd moved 27 times in the first 15 years of his life, constantly being balanced between his parents who were split, constantly being moved to different homes, different schools, new kids, Like He didn't know how to receive or give love. But what he cares about most on this planet is his wife and his two girls. But because he doesn't know how to give or receive love, the way he shows up as a man, as a husband, as a father, doesn't align with being able to allow them to be able to be in his family full time. But when we recognize what does suffering look like for him, it's literally loneliness and isolation because he didn't do what was necessary to get him where he needed to be to ultimately save his marriage and his, his two girls. And so for him, a very clear moment is him and his wife sitting on their ranch when they're 85 years old. And the only noise breaking the silence is their daughters and grandkids playing on their ranch that just breaks through that silence of sound. When he gets really, really clear on what that is, because he knows the suffering he wishes to avoid, he can burn that into his soul. And it starts to allow him to regulate on a consistent basis because he knows what he wants and he knows how he has to get there. Yeah, it makes it easier makes it easier to embrace so much easier. the pain now. Yeah. Right. The second step is we've got to identify the pains we tend to avoid and learn to embrace them. Right. So I'll give two examples on this. One is a personal one, right? I have an imbalance in my body. I don't have a lat on the left side of my back. I don't have a tricep. My bicep is my gracilis from my leg. I have a curve in my spine because of the muscular imbalance. 15 years ago, the normal everyday pain started to turn into suffering that was debilitating. The only way that I was able to start to challenge that normal everyday suffering was to keep my body fit, my core strong, maintain a lean stature, and make sure that I have physical activity on a regular basis. So what do most people do in that scenario? And it's what I did. I went and joined a gym. I went very consistently for 30 days, right? So had I had a coach, I'd be like, that worked awesome for a month. If I'd done a New Year's resolution, I'd be like, that worked awesome for a month. Yeah. But that's where most people stop is then they just stop taking action because after 30 days, I stopped going. So I had to ask myself the question, is it the pain of working out that I'm avoiding or is it the anxiety when I get, what I get when I'm in a crowded gym? Mm. It was absolutely definitive. It was the anxiety I got in a crowded gym. And so I had to embrace the pain of creating the time, the space, the energy to build out a home gym and find other ways to keep my core strong, stay lean and stay active and physical, right? Because I knew what the suffering looked like. I was already starting to experience. So when I got clear on the fact that I wanted to show up, that became a lot easier. I had a conversation with someone a couple of weeks ago. They literally saw that 500-pound telephone in front of them. They're a business owner. They have no issue building relationships, identifying problems, finding solutions to those problems. But for whatever reason, they couldn't pick up the phone, which really was only connecting on those three things. What we started to unpack is that it wasn't the actual issue of making those calls that was a struggle. She actually had a fear of what it would look like if she was successful, which comes full circle to what we talked about before. She had failed in so many areas of her life. Like, What would her business look like if she was actually successful? Would she be able to scale? Would she be able to keep up? Would she be able to do the things that were necessary? And once we started to work through that, picking up the telephone was no longer a hesitation. Interesting. Yeah. Because, the third, well, I just, just one second on that being successful thing, because I do think that that's so interesting. And I have felt that myself. And I've been. it surprised me when I felt it. But there is this fear that like now you've leveled up and you've set a new standard for yourself and now you have to live up to that standard. 
And what if you keep succeeding and you keep raising the bar? Now you have to keep keeping up with that. And it just puts this pressure on you or you put this pressure on yourself to then be this better thing, be this better thing. And then you you can almost sort of shame yourself through that of like... 100%. Then there's that weird shame, which is like, well, I don't want necessarily all of that, but that I should want it. And so there's this weird tug and pull back and forth as you're approaching success that can really mess with your mind. Which is also why I really always work with clients to define success for themselves. Let's not look at the external definition of success because at the end of the day, to your point, and you said it best, I should want these things, but I might not. Mm -hmm. Right? I'll tell you, right? When you and I were business partners, a lot of what I did there was because I felt like I should. Yeah, I should make X amount of money. I should reach levels of success. I should have a normal white collar job and be happy with it. But I wasn't. I just wasn't. I was bored. I was, I was miserable. I didn't enjoy what I did other than the relationship side of it. And that's no bash on anything other than the fact that I put myself there because I felt like I should. right? And then every time I raised the bar on that should, it made it that much more difficult to unpack. Yeah. And the thing is, is like the slippery slope of raising our level of awareness is a lot of people raise their level of awareness, but they just become more aware of all the ways they're judging themselves. <laughs> right? And that shame cycle continues. Yeah. And so that's why I always say, like, we have to get really clear on what we actually want, not what the world tells us to do, not what who we think we should be, not what our parents have told us we should be, but what do we actually want as individuals? And when we get clear on that, we acknowledge the suffering we wish to avoid, and we identify the pains we tend to avoid and learn to embrace them, this whole process becomes easier. The last step is really simple and I'll keep it basic. It's we have to learn to establish this as a habit in all areas of our life, which is a mindset shift. Because what we know from experts in habit formation is that there's an upfront energy tax. And that's how we look at it. We look at it as a cost. We look at it as an expense. If I'm going to start doing something new, right? It might last for 36 hours, but then how do I keep it in conscious awareness moving forward? The reality of it is, is if we shift our mentality and we realize that it's not a cost, it's not an expense, but rather it's an investment in our future self, then it starts to allow us to feel like we're actually the ones who are influencing the direction. And those choices that we make on a regular and consistent basis to embrace the pain, we can look at through a lens of meaning, right? That old adage is definitely antiquated. What doesn't kill us makes us stronger, but it's also a challenge of perspective because it causes us to see our struggles through a lens of meaning. Yeah. Did we unpack all three of the things that you wanted to hit on? I know I interrupted you, but we got... That was the third one? Yep. That's and yep, it was acknowledge the suffering we wish to avoid, identify the pains we tend to avoid and learn to embrace them, and then establish this as a habit in all areas of success. So when you asked, how do I help people put this into action? It's a process that helps unpack and takes them down that path. And okay. then when they aren't taking action on something, that means one of two things to me, typically. Either it's not that important, right? They've thought it was important and it fits into the bucket of I should be doing this, but it doesn't actually align with where they want to go. Or there's a blind spot that's keeping them from taking action that we haven't effectively unpacked. And so when action isn't taken, we revisit that. Lack of action is an action. So we have to then look at how do we understand the what and the why as to what's keeping you stuck there. Well, that, that's an interesting point too. How do you help people let go of the things they feel like they should be doing, but bringing them little value and no joy? Yeah. And again, so you're asking great questions that none of them have a simple answer because it's different for every person. But of course, I think when we get to the core of who the person is and we really understand where they want to go, we start to recognize that there are actions that we think we should be taking or we think bring us joy. I've got a client that I work with. And one of the first things she said to me, which has stuck with me, so I've, I've shared this a few times, is that she's never written a final draft. Sorry, she's never written a first draft. I said that incorrectly. She literally would only do things if she knew she could succeed. Hmm. But one of those things is she's believed for a long time that she was a writer, that she liked to write, that that's how she would express herself to the world, that she needed to kind of create and document. She wanted to be an author. She wanted to create all this content. And so one of the things that we pivoted on was, okay, and this, this became a moniker because she was going to create video content as well. It was like, just turn the camera on and start talking. Like, don't worry about it being a final draft. Don't worry if it goes through 10 iterations. Don't worry about if you fail because the most successful people I know have failed way more times than they've succeeded. And it's a part of the process if we learn to actually extract lessons from each one of those failures. Well, what happened was over a consistent process of about six months, she kept saying she was going to write, started to write, but realized that probably wasn't her medium anymore. 
That's not how she expressed herself into the world. But it was only by starting to do it again that she had been shaming herself truthfully for years. Like, I want to write. I don't ever write. I don't ever create the space to write. I don't do these things. I get stuck. Well, she started writing consistently. Because she had created her life of alignment, we'd gone through the work of understanding who she was, what she was going to accomplish, what are the strategy and tactics to get there? What does that look like in a three to five year vision? What are the priorities for the next year? How are we going to put emphasis in the next 90 days? And what are the daily actions to take? She moved forward on all those things. Over the course of three to six months, she started to realize, huh, I don't really like to write that much anymore. (laughs) So sometimes it's as simple as just taking toll on what are the things that give you joy, freedom, and fulfillment? What are the things that are a drain? And then from the idea of leverage and scale to make sure that we're doing the things that are necessary, I have all of my clients ask themselves three questions. Is this something that only I can do? Is this something that someone else can do? Is it something that even needs to be done? What we find is like 90% fits into these two buckets, right? And typically the things that only I can do often are also the things that give us joy, freedom, and fulfillment. Not always, but often. And so if we can eliminate these 90%, delegate where appropriate, recognizing that depending on where we're at in the growth of our business or our career or what have you, that there's going to be pieces of this 90 that we still have to do. But at least understanding the lists that fit into each category allow us then to determine where do we want to spend our time. Yeah. Well, and even those things that you would rather delegate, but because of your position, you can't delegate. Like If you know that those are delegatable tasks and you can sort of bucket those and go, all right, this is the crap that I have to do that I just have to sort through. Like it makes it easier to do that rather than just sort of going through everything and being generally unhappy. If you can just say, like, okay, no, I know that I'm going to do my two hours of unhappy tasks right now, you can sort of like it gives that some meaning. Like, okay, I'm suffering through again, I'm embracing this pain so that I can get to the freedom later of doing the work that I want to do, living the life I want to live. That's 100% correct. And you just reframed it in that mentality perfectly. I have to say it in my own words. Otherwise, it doesn't make sense. That's the, way, that's the way my brain works. It's perfect. So where would you suggest people start with themselves? You know, We're heading into the end of a year. We're recording this at the very beginning of December 2020. We're going into a new year. It's a weird pandemic year. Everybody normally sets some goals for themselves. I think this is a good opportunity to to take a look inside maybe and figure out sort of what people want in life as they've been reevaluating what their lives have looked like and what's important over the last eight months here. So where do you suggest people start thinking through some of this? Yeah. So I, I would, you know, I think 2020 knocked a lot of people down. I think there've been a lot of people who've found a way to pivot, you know, in, in whatever respective world they're in and, and find some level of success. Some have been very successful in this time and others feel completely stuck. You know, we're, we are, we're entering into 2021. 2020 was supposed to be the year of clarity and it was the year of chaos, right? It just was not a year that most people predicted. And in a lot of ways, our, the lives we know it were robbed from us. And so people are trying to find ways to just go through that process. The most basic is something I said a little bit earlier is literally just create two lists. What are the things that I was doing in my life pre-COVID and that I've been doing in my life since COVID that are additive to my life? that really take me on the path that I want to serve and where I want to go and what I want to do and who I want to be. And they bring me some level of joy, freedom, and fulfillment. And then the second list, which is where are the areas that drain our energy that we aren't getting that level of fulfillment that are causing us angst and anxiety and stress and fear and guilt and all those other things. And try to move as many to this list as possible. Get rid of the negatives wherever you can. That's not necessarily deep enough for everybody. And I would just encourage that there's a really thoughtful way to kind of lead yourself through this. But in the most simplistic sense, I would look at literally from a three to five year vision perspective, remove the COVID, remove COVID, the pandemic, and really start to understand like, what is my vision for the next period of time? What are the strategic objectives that I need to get there? And what is imperative for me to be or do? So for me, it's imperative that I'm in peak physical condition. It's imperative that I have leverage in my life. So those are two examples of what I mean by imperative. Strategic objectives are literally the big bucket items that are, that are going to drive us there. And then bring it down into the next year. And what are the priorities for the next 12 months? And ask yourself literally the questions like, why is it a priority? How are we going to measure it? Where do we go? How do we do it? So that we can really run it through a filter and break those things as much as we can into smaller bite-sized pieces. So we talked about quarterly emphasis. 
and where, what are the outputs that we're going to generate over the next 90 days, as well as what are the daily tasks that we can do. Now, this can be overwhelming for a whole lot of people to just start with a lot of the things that I just threw at you. You know, I've talked to you briefly about the fact that I'm on a mission to impact a billion lives in the next 25 years. And I'm very, very aware that 99.9999999% of those people will never pay me a dollar. And so I've got a gift for everybody who's listening that will help you with these types of questions and give you a structure so you can take yourself on that own intrinsic journey. Go to nolimitsprelude.com. And a lot of the questions and framing that I just walked you through is going to be in a very succinct format, which is a basic concept of a lot of our coaching philosophies in a free download for you so that you can start asking yourself some of those questions. And if you need help beyond that, by all means, let us know. There's multiple different avenues that we can help support that. But I think that would be a really good tool for people to answer the question you just asked. Yeah. Well, I appreciate you sharing that link. We'll put that in the show notes as well. And then for anybody listening who has made it this far with us and is like, man, I could really use some of that. I mean, this is what you do. You help people. I think there's this element of listening to a podcast like this and saying like, oh, this is this person in this castle somewhere who does this thing for other successful people who are different than I am. But the reality is like, this is what you do and you do it for everyday people and, and you help them get where they want to go. So if anybody is listening to this and needs that help, I would definitely encourage you to reach out to Brian. Yep. Thank you. So I got one more question for you that is one that I end on with everybody. And I know we haven't really been talking about business here, but the name of the show is People Business. And so I have been asking just about everybody, what is the purpose of business? (laughs) That's a great question. And I think there's probably a gazillion different answers and everybody's going to have a different lens on this. I believe that business is a formal structure for helping people come together and collaborate to improve their lives and their situations personally, professionally, and financially. I think that business is a mechanism for how we can have relationship building, how we can have exchange of thoughts, of services, of products. And I think that we can do that in a way that really can add some leverage and meaning into people's lives because there also creates a lot of human connection. Where I get wary is when business is business simply for transaction sake and business isn't business for the sake of solving problems and helping people. I think if we look at the root of all business and entrepreneurs, right? Entrepreneurs exist because they're solving problems that exist in the world. And so I genuinely believe that when we can kind of go back to the core of why do we exist in the first place? Why does a certain business exist in the first place? And how do we view it through the lens of customer language? Like what are the problems that we're solving? It allows us to realize that there's people on the other end of everything. And so people ask me often, and that's one of the reasons I love, about, I love the title of your podcast, Brian, what are you an expert in? And it's like, well, there's a whole variety of things that I have experience in. What I have expert in is people. Right? What I'm an expert in is people because I study human behavior and human performance. And at the end of the day, no matter what we do in this world, even if it's an online business where it looks primarily as products or transactions, people are still involved. Everything on this planet connects to people. And so business should, that's one of the few times I'm going to use the word should, should focus on how is this impacting the lives of people. And when that happens and we can keep that in the forefront of our minds, we can have business in a really authentic, autonomous way that brings people together and solves problems. That is a beautiful answer. That is a a great note to go out on. It's all about the people. The more you can be helping people in general, whether it's the people in your immediate circle or the people your business touches or the people in the broader community, you know, the better you get and the better we all become. Yep. I genuinely believe that. Brian, it is a joy to be with you every time we do it. I look forward to many more of these conversations and into watching your success. I'm, I'm happy for you in the venture that you have right now. It's been sad to not have you uh, part of my professional team anymore, but love that we've stayed in touch and really appreciate you coming on and, and sharing your expertise with all the listeners. Man, I'm grateful for you too. I'm also grateful for you creating a platform that's putting a lot of good into the world. You've had some amazing guests on. I'm humbled to be a part of that mix. And you and I are going to be friends and connected for a long time. Absolutely. And everybody who's listening, uh, if you are listening to this around the new year, I hope this is helpful. I hope you go out and can help set some good direction for your life and have a great new year. Hey folks, one last thing before you go. 
If you have a friend or colleague who you think would enjoy this episode, hit that little share button and send it their way. Also, if you like the episode, make sure to hit subscribe so you don't miss the next one. That's it. Thanks for coming. I'm O'Brien McMahon. Go make the most of your business and the people in it.